3: I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup: Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and James McDonald. Tonight on Fast, we are all over the after-hours action. Shares of Disney, that stock moving lower on the back of earnings. The company's call is underway. As soon as that call wraps, we will hear from Disney CEO Bob Chapek. He will join us in a first on CNBC interview straight ahead. Plus. Breaking news out of Fisker. New details crossing the EV maker's deal with Foxconn to build cars here in the U.S. Fisker's CEO joins us exclusively. And later, we're breaking down the bounce. Stocks rebounding from yesterday's big sell-off. We'll tell you how our traders are playing today's turnaround. When we start off with an earnings alert on Disney. Let's get straight to Julia Borson with all the details. Julia.
4: Well, Melissa, Disney earnings far surpassing expectations. Earnings per share grew 32 percent to 79 cents instead of falling by 55 percent, as analysts had anticipated, though the company's revenue came in a bit light. But as you see that stock dropping, it's slower than expected streaming subscriber growth that seems to be weighing on Disney shares right now. The company grew Disney Plus subscribers to 103.6 million, but that's lower than the 109 million Disney Plus subscribers analysts anticipated. On the call just now, though, I have to note that Disney's CFO said that subscriber growth in the third month of the quarter was faster than growth in the first two months. Now, on the earnings call as well, CEO Bob Chapek just announced two new sports rights deals that will bolster the library of content on ESPN+, Plus, including an extension of his deal with Major League Baseball through 2028, with the option to simulcast all live MLB coverage for ESPN networks on ESPN+, Plus, as well as an eight-year deal with La Liga, that's Spanish League Football, covering both English and Spanish language rights. And as for the future of the theatrical movie business, after... after... After three movies this summer that will be distributed simultaneously in theaters and on Disney Plus for a $30 fee, Disney announcing that it will give an exclusive 45-day theatrical window for two upcoming films, Ryan Reynolds' Free Guy and Marvel's Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. So we'll have to discuss all of that and more with Disney CEO Bob Chapek, who, as you mentioned, Melissa, will be joining me as soon
3: as that earnings call wraps. Back over to you. We look forward to that. Julia, thank you. We'll see you in a few. Let's get the trade on Disney here. Guy, kick it off.
5: Well, I mean, Tom Rogers says this all the time, and Rich, Rich Greenfield just tweeted it. So I give a HT. Is that what they call it? A hat tip to him. But you know, in terms of subscribers, they have a half the amount of subscribers as Netflix, but one sixth the revenue. So, as Thomas said a number of times, not subscribers are created equally, number one. Number two, you know, our poo, Tim, can speak to that for Disney Plus was disappointing. Street was expecting 410. It came in at 399. That's trending in the wrong direction. That sort of lines up with my earlier statement. Valuation now now at 175. The stock's trading 35 times next year's numbers. I think the market is trying to consider that. Where do you buy the stock? Final point. 162 is a 50% correction of the recent low, that 120 low. And that recent high that we saw of 203. So I think it might actually get there. That's where you draw your line in the sand.
3: Tim, yesterday we talked about the forward PE of Disney, which is about 61 right now. A lot of that P.E. gain had been on the back of the of the hopes for streaming. And here we are in a situation where subs just didn't come in as high as forecasted. So is this right for Disney to be down three percent? Maybe it should be down more.
1: I, I I would have thought it'd be down more. Um, I actually think this is a pretty good show as a Disney shareholder, and, and I think this is about expectations. I think on March 9th, when we heard from the company that they were over 100 million subs, uh, the entire street reset their numbers even higher, even though we just heard uh, that, that the third month of the year was a lot better than the first month of the year. Look, I, I, you know, I, I could also say that Disney's got half the amount of subs as Netflix in 120th the amount of time. And, and so um, ultimately for Disney, also the ARPU, guy, a great point. It went from 563 down to 395 and, and a very disappointing even relative to the 410. It was expected to decline but they're nowhere near bringing in the top line from the DTC businesses, Netflix, but remember the Disney business strategy and remember that the the media and the content and and, and essentially the distribution company is there also to be a lubricant for the, the, the experiences business and a case where, whether it's parks or, or cruises or experiences. This is what Disney's always done. And the fact of the matter is their content and their content spend is going to rival anybody's over the next couple of years. So uh, I think if you multiply, if you, if you value this on a multiple of DTC on a sales number, which a lot of people used to do for Netflix, and then you throw the core business on an earnings multiple, if you listen to JP Morgan, it's a $220 stock.
3: So um, maybe I'm being obtuse, but when you, when you say that, I understand that it's part of this whole, you know, driving the ecosystem of Disney, Tim. But when we, when we say that, are we also sort of implying that part of that gain in P.E., that it shouldn't be that much of a gain because it's, the, the accretion should really be towards the other parts of the business? So the comparison is not fair think, at all when you're saying the comparison of, of Disney streaming business versus Netflix in terms of a P.E.?
1: Well, first of all, Netflix PE doesn't make sense at all. Yeah, and, I'm and granted. And Netflix's PE's never made sense. Uh, they've never made money. They, they burn cash. So, uh, my point is that Disney ultimately, what they proved with their studio is that it was a flywheel for three other core businesses, including, you know, consumer products and themes and experience. I'm just saying that ultimately, this is why the, the, the profitability inherent in Disney's model is a lot better than it is in Netflix's model. Uh, and meanwhile, Netflix has more competition than ever. So, it's clearly, I'm not would you rathering, but, you know, relative value, I, I, I just did, didn't I? But Disney ultimately is is to me a very different story. Uh, I'm just saying that I don't care that their their DTC streaming business isn't as profitable right now.
3: Yeah, I guess my point is that, you know, the argument for a Disney streaming business to have a little bit more of the, the Netflix P.E. may be a little bit false, Dan, because you're not really looking at it. You're looking at it as sort of like I don't want to say a loss leader, but a way of, of boosting the other parts of the business. You're not looking at it as a standalone business
6: well you're not now because it 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 isn't the main part of the business that's why it's kind of apples to oranges we've been talking about netflix versus um disney plus for years and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense i think the way that tim has laid out his Bullish thesis for the last few years does make sense, and thinking about it from a, a flywheel, I would also add that you know, look at that—that that Hulu did beat um, on the subs, and and when you look at, uh, I think Julia just told us they renewed some um, some sports deals. I think that live, um, you know, deals, uh, you know, programming is really important for that Hulu pop property, and so to me, I think that 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 should be beneficial. Um, listen, you know, Guy kind of laid it out here. It broke out the the prior high. Um, You know, last year Q1 was about 150 or so. It broke out that 150 to 160 range. It probably heads back there. Listen, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago, I was thinking when the stock was in the mid 180s that you'd have a push back on that kind of reopening trade towards that prior high um, at $200. And now it just feels like it's kind of in no man's land here. And I don't really think it's about PE. I think that sounds, um, you know, I don't mean to sound obtuse. And I know on some shows or in some movies, I'll get you thrown in the hole uh, for calling somebody obtuse here. Um, It just feels like we've kind of crossed the Rubicon on valuations here. We didn't care on the way up, but we seem to care on the way down. And I know we're going to talk about some of these high valuation names later. Um, so this one you know, should probably hang out in that 170 to 160 range, in my opinion, for the near term.
3: What do you think, James? Uh, I love coming last because I get to
7: borrow everybody else's points to make mine. Uh, starting with Guy, the fib levels here, a 50% retracement from the recent range puts us at 161.5. In this market where valuations have been bonkers, energy for buying has been unabated, and every asset around the world is swelling up, you've got to look at technical charts. We can't look at fundamentals. We can't look at historical references. We have to look at things referencing the environment. And in this environment, looking at the charts gives us some clues. We saw last week a breakdown on Bitcoin that followed through. We've seen some other technical weaknesses, big names. Um, And Disney is a company that's going to be successful no matter what. But it carried itself into 2021 on the coattails or flywheel, to Tim's point, uh, of this streaming business. And with it being a strong brand, a Dow component, everyone's favorite, Mickey Mouse has been around for generations. It gathers subscribers faster than anyone else in the world could have. It got priced into the stock. Now it's coming into potentially a transition uh, into a late cycle. Um, we all know my bear suit has been fried, but this is definitely late cycle. We have to assume Disney is going to get pressure with the rest of the market. Parks are opening. Netflix is there. The competition's there. Disney is not going to be continuing its path because of the market environment. But I think 161.5 is right for what Guy's saying. But then to the other point, as markets get choppy, we've all been an institutional desk. We've all seen what money managers do. There's got to be a rotation out of the heavy stuff, out of the technical out of the speculative stuff into names in the Dow, names you can count on. Disney's gonna get support at some point where other companies aren't because it's a big, strong Dow company. All
3: right. right, we'll keep track of Disney. It's down 3.7 percent. And a reminder, we've got CEO Bob Chapek of Disney coming up straight ahead on the program. Meantime, we've got breaking news here on Fisker. The stock is soaring right now up 18 percent. The EV maker announcing final details on its deal with Foxconn to do the final assembly of its cars right here in the United States. Let's get to Phil Lebeau live with the CEO of Fisker. Phil.
8: Thank you, Melissa. Let's bring in Henrik Fisker, the CEO of Fisker, joining us from California. Uh, Henrik, let's be clear, you are finalizing the deal today, but you made it clear back in February that this deal was essentially in the works. You signed a memorandum of understanding with Foxconn. Now that the deal has been inked, are you planning to build these vehicles at the Foxconn plant being built in southeastern Wisconsin?
9: Hey, Phil, good to see you. Well, of course, this is one of the uh, uh, lead uh Places that we're looking at. Uh, The truth is that Fisker, you know, we have received offers from three other states for manufacturing and we have to do proper due diligence as a public company and spend a couple of months reviewing the best option. And of course, Wisconsin is one of the options that's clear, but uh, we will announce the final site probably in about two to three months together with Foxconn.
8: Henrik, I'm sure you're aware of, if you mention the name Foxconn to a lot of people in Wisconsin, they will roll their eyes. There are elected leaders in Wisconsin who sit there and say, wait a second, these guys said they were going to be investing uh, several billion dollars in our state. Now it's going to be less than a billion dollars. They're not going to bring as many jobs as they originally announced back in 2017. And there's a fair amount of skepticism that Foxconn will ever follow through with building a plant in southeastern Wisconsin, what do you say to people who have a lot of skepticism about Foxconn right now?
9: Well, you know, we are we an American car company. Uh, we just, you know, as you know, went public. Have still about nine hundred million dollars in the bank, and this program has now been going on for a couple of months. We signed a final deal, firm deal today. That's important, and you know, Foxconn. I believe is going to become more and more important in the automotive world, specifically because as you have seen with the chip shortage, one of the part of our deal with them is that we will never be out of chips. And being a small car manufacturer like us, not having to stand in line to get chips is a big thing. Uh, I've spent multiple times uh, on Zoom and and Teams with the chairman of Foxconn, and I can tell you this deal is real. We are going to be building vehicles here in the US. We are far along in development. Exterior design has been signed off. It's going to be incredibly innovative. So this is going to happen. Henrik, will you co-own the facility
8: where the vehicle will be built, or will this be a Foxconn facility? And obviously, you guys are going to be uh, one of the first clients uh, building vehicles at that facility in conjunction with Foxconn.
9: So it's it's not a a, a usual automotive deal. The way we have structured this deal, and as we also mentioned, is that it's kind of a co-investment where... We have divided certain things up uh, that each have responsibility for. So, for example, Foxconn will own the factory. We will own the tooling. We, of course, brand the vehicle, design the vehicle, market and sell the vehicle. Uh, And then we are doing profit sharing on, on this vehicle. So it is a joint investment. However, Foxconn is owning the factory. They're also taking a lead in the global supply chain. And as you know, a car is becoming more and more a computer. And Foxconn probably have one of the biggest electronic supply chains in the world. And that's how we're going to be able to drive costs down. And remember, Phil, this is not just another electric car. It's a premium electric car under $30,000. So it is a high volume, mass-market product that's going to be sold globally.
8: And I know you said production uh, possibly of a quarter million vehicles. Last question, Henrik. When you announced this uh, Memorandum of Understanding back in February, your stock was at 19. Uh, Coming into today, I think it was down close to $9 a share. It's basically been whacked along with the other EV stocks. Uh, There are more than a few cynics out there who look at, especially EV SPACs, and they say they're a long ways from profitability. Why should I get into them right now? What do you say to those people?
9: Well, I would say don't put everybody in the same bucket. You know, we have closed three deals in less than a year. You know, the first was going public uh, with Apollo SPAC. The second was uh, the Magna manufacturing uh, agreement with, with Magna and, and finally now uh, with Foxconn. So one of the things we're doing different than all the other SPACs is we are really lining up to have a complete product portfolio accelerated within only two years. So before 2025, we'll have four vehicles on the road. You can't exist with just one cool car. You know, I've been in this business for a while. I've had some difficulties and some failures. I've learned from them. And I think our investors understand that we're different. Now we're gonna get put in with everybody else. And of course you have seen uh, also a lot of movement that has to do with Tesla's maybe uh, sales going down in China. But at the end of the day, I think you'll see a few winners coming out. And I believe Fisker is going to be one of them.
8: Henrik Fisker, the CEO of Fisker. Thank you, Henrik, for joining us uh, from California on a day, Melissa, when they have finalized the agreement with Foxconn to build a vehicle here in the United States. Exact location remains to be seen. uh, But no doubt you see from the reaction of the stock that investors are looking at this and saying, "Okay, let's see the next step between Fisker and Foxconn. Melissa.
3: Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. We see the reaction of the stock in the after-hours session. Uh, it's interesting, Henrik Fisker had mentioned the, uh, the time frame, and it seems like a very fast time frame to get a car um, out into the public and on the market guide. But at the same time, Goldman Sachs points out that by the time the ocean all-electric SUV hits the market, there will be a dozen other all-electric SUVs specifically out there as competition.
5: And Goldman downgraded the stock a few weeks ago, I think, to uh, sell from hold, $10 price target. There's a lot to unravel here. Um, first of all, they're supposed to report earnings on Monday, this yep. coming Monday, the 17th. If I had been, you know, one of my questions would have been, wouldn't have been cleaner just to announce everything at once. That's neither here nor there. With that said, major double bottom around that level that Phil talked about at 9 bucks from the October low. And you just mentioned we were trading 32 at one point. I'm inclined, personally, to wait until, see what they have to say at earnings and see how the stock trades. A lot of people negative in this name. It's had a huge run to the downside, held that low. But you have that catalyst on Monday you got to be watching out for. It's
3: got 26% short interest as well, James, um, in a space that has just been grim death in the past few months.
7: Right. And I go back to the point of look at the environment we're in. Uh, Fisker has got a, a very storied Checkered and interesting background story with this turnaround. It's a car that people will like because it's less expensive than other EV plays. It's a car and it's a manufacturer that will be in the race for this EV market. And I think the environment and the timing right now is going to be challenging for them uh, because we've had so much money made in so many areas. I think there's going to be a propensity of selling This stock, as opposed to buying it, given the competition and given the fact that this particular car isn't necessarily going to make as much money as some of the other manufacturers.
3: All right. Up next, we're all over the after hours action shares of Coinbase and Airbnb. Both stocks on the move right now after reporting results we will break down the numbers straight ahead. And we're just minutes away from our can't miss interview with Disney CEO Bob Chapek. He's wrapping up the company's earnings call right now. As soon as he's done, he will join us live. Don't go anywhere. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a double dose of earnings alerts for you. Airbnb and Coinbase both on the move after reporting results. Kate Rooney's digging in on Coinbase. We start off with Deidre Bosa for more on Airbnb's quarter.
0: Debo. Melissa, CEO Brian Chesky, he began the call not long ago acknowledging that COVID cases are still surging in places like India, but he went on to talk about the strong recovery they're seeing in other places like the United States and pointed out that the return of other travel segments will further boost its rebound, calling out urban and cross-border travel. Now, investors in the Q&A section, they're curious about supply, especially as competitors like Expedia spend big to win over hosts on their own platforms. Airbnb says that total active listings, they were flat quarter over quarter. Chesky just said that they are working on getting those numbers up by making it easier to onboard hosts and give them better tools And services. The big question, of course, is will it be enough for a hot vac summer? I will ask that of Chesky and many more questions when I speak to him fresh off the call in about one hour's time. Back to you.
3: All right, Deidre, thank you. Let's trade Airbnb. Um, Tim Seymour, I know you like it. You wish you had the ability to get it in the stock draft on power lunch, (laughs) but you were beat out by Petra Demkova. So where do you stand on Airbnb's quarter here?
1: Well, I, I like it down, you know, forty percent from where it was. I, I, I think we, out of that IPO, there was still some froth to burn off. But we have a case here where the gross bookings uh, are up, the margins up fifty-two percent. They've at least guided to adjusted EBITDA, whatever it adjusted EBITDA means, uh, positive sometime in in 2021. That's that's very bullish for a company that's been burning cash for a long time. Um, not terribly bullish on the first quarter outlook, uh, and let's wait and see. But again, I think you've taken a, a lot of the the you know the froth out of this stock. And I think at the end of the day, they really are a big winner coming out of this. And I think they've 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 right sized a lot of their ops base. In other words, they've cut costs. They're coming out of this a lot leaner. That's what you want to see.
3: Do you buy, Guy, the notion that it's a winner in the pandemic and it's a winner out of the pandemic as well? I mean, as people go and travel, do you yeah. think that they're going to reach out for Airbnb in Paris as opposed to staying at a hotel? It's one example. No,
5: I'm not I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm sophisticated enough to go to Paris. I mean, maybe I'll make it to Yonkers or something. Paris, we'll see. Texas, but no, I do want. think it could be. I, I, th- I think it could be a winner <laughs> in both environments. It's interesting when this stock came, went public. I, um, I remember saying something quasi negative about the name, and Deirdre called me up and explained to me why I was wrong, and she did it in a very intelligent way. And then ten minutes later, Rick Heitzman did the same thing. So I'm, I'm a believer now in terms of the Airbnb story. Tim is right; it's traded really poorly. But it's also heard, you know, held this recent low. We round tripped the entire move, it seems like. And this quarter, I thought, was really encouraging. So I'm with Tim. I think you can own it here.
3: All right. Airbnb up about a percent after hours. We got an earnings alert meantime on Coinbase. Let's get to Kate Rooney with the details on that. Kate.
11: Hey, Melissa. Coinbase shares recovering here a bit after hours. The crypto exchange reporting revenue tripling in the first quarter and says that the current quarter is shaping up to meet or exceed those Q1 results. Roughly 94% of Coinbase's net revenue did still come from transaction fees. The much smaller category, which is subscription and services, saw a 700% jump from the year earlier, same quarter a year ago. Coinbase now has 56 million verified users. The conference call is underway now, guys. It did start with Q&A from customers. The first question, no surprise here, was about Dogecoin. Armstrong now says that they plan to offer Dogecoin trading in between six to eight weeks. In the future, he also says they plan to move faster when adding new assets. So a lot of speed and focus uh, from Brian Armstrong and the CFO, Alicia Haas, talking about just moving faster in general. Uh, The CFO also talking about trading volume, getting a boost from Bitcoin's bull market, and the recent price cycle she highlighted some of the risk and volatility that's also baked into that business. And, guys, don't miss Alicia Haas, Coinbase CFO. She is sitting down with Jim Cramer tonight on Mad Money. Back to you.
3: Is that, that's your dog, Kate?
11: We have our Georgia? own Doge here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, is this the first time that they've said they're adding Doge? It is, yeah. It is. So they, this had been a big—within wow. the Dogecoin community, a lot of people— looked at Coinbase as sort of a catalyst for the price. It doesn't seem to
3: be moving here much after hours, but until now, they hadn't mentioned uh, adding Dogecoin. All right, Kate, thank you. Um, Interesting that the Coinbase effect isn't taking effect in this case, uh, Dan, as we've seen with many other coins that are announced to be added to Coinbase on the platform, and that usually is a catalyst for it. But anyway, aside from that, what did you make of the Coinbase quarter?
6: Well, it's a really good point. And I think the day that the company listed in their direct listing when it went public a little more than a month ago, we were talking about it. And they have tremendous flexibility to add more crypto assets on there. And they know if they're trading on other platforms, that their users, their 56 million users are likely to trade some of the ones where the memes are really good Mel And and the Doge meme was really good for a bit. But, you know, like you just add that on there and the people are going to trade it. It's like playing a new video game on your Atari system right there, Gaia Dami. So I listen. It was a great quarter. I mean, for all intents and purposes, they've already told us, though, that they're their numbers are really going to be dependent on transaction fees, right? And so um, at the end of the day, you tell me what's going to happen to Bitcoin and what's going to happen to to Ethereum over the next month or two. And we already see them kind of having a tough time or at least over the last 24 hours or so. I just don't think you're going to be buying or selling this stock based on what the two largest crypto assets are doing over a short period of time. And I do believe that this, buying this stock somewhere here in 2021 will be buying like buying Schwab at some point in the 80s or something like that. So to me, I don't know what the price is. I do think it's the sort of thing you want to buy on a pullback, though.
3: Hmm. Uh, James, you've got a more diversified way of playing crypto.
7: Absolutely. And we've seen uh, through our eyes, you mentioned Atari. When we were teenagers, we were playing video games. Teenagers are today are innovating these digital assets and innovations, and the ecosystem is expanding. We've seen in the past week and a half or so, at the peak of mania, um, some absolutely catastrophic losses come in. And it's important to be smart about how you approach crypto. And it's such a confusing space. Uh, I really like BITQ. Bitwise has come up with the first crypto ETF. And this isn't an ETF that invests just in coins. It invests in businesses. In fact, Coinbase is 11% of its top, uh, one of the top 10 holdings, is the top holding is at 11%. And an index approach to investing in crypto is probably the smartest way to go. You get diversification. Of course, there's overlap in the holdings. Um, the space isn't that huge in terms of big names. But as things happen, we saw a headline today with a potential investigation uh, on the, um, the biggest exchange, Binance. There's a lot of risk in this market. And I like BITQ as a way to de-risk and have someone really smart at the wheel uh, to manage the crypto space. And I love Coinbase. It was the first platform that I got on. Obvious as a standard uh, to Tim's point. I think it was Tim's point. Um, this is going to be around for a long time. And, uh, but you want to own it intelligently and you want to have somebody who really knows what they're doing, doing this. And so I like an index approach.
3: All right. Coming up, we are trading the turnaround. Sox rebounding from yesterday's big sell-off. So should you believe this bounce, we'll break it all down straight ahead. And we are just moments away from our first on CNBC interview, but Disney CEO Bob Chapek will get his first reaction to the company's quarter. And that big miss on Disney Plus subscribers don't go anywhere. Fast when he's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks staging a rebound today with the Dow jumping 1.3% for its best day since late March. But the gains were not enough to erase yesterday's losses. And the latest producer price data showed inflation is still a concern. So do you believe today's bounce? Is it possible that inflation was a big issue yesterday and not a big issue today when the CDC also relaxes masking guidelines which would seem to me, Tim, to lead to an economy that could reopen much faster, to inflationary pressures developing much faster, et cetera. Markets don't care about that today.
8: They,
1: they didn't care about a PPI number that came in probably two times as hot, up six-tenths, after a 1% last, uh, last month were furnishings and, and uh, materials prices, steel prices up 18%. So, so, yeah, I mean, and yet bond yields, you know, you saw the 10-year rally uh, you know, four-tenths of a percent. So you actually had some relief in terms of the expectations on inflation. Go figure. Um, what you didn't see was, despite the fact that the VIX fell 15%, 16%, was pressure was still on these high multiple stocks. Look at Square, look at Tesla, uh, look at Palantir, look at some of the names that have been under a lot of pressure because of the multiples. And, and, and you saw a gold rally, which to me um, does make sense. And we've been waiting for gold to kind of re-accelerate after what had already been a 10% rally. So, um, yeah, I think, sir, Certainly, the the pressure that we've seen all week is alive and well, and the PPI reinforces this doesn't change overnight. In fact, we saw second derivative finished goods um, that are now higher, and that doesn't just unwind itself very quickly.
3: Guy, yesterday, your chart to watch was Amazon, and Amazon today, underperformed technology.
5: At one point today, Amazon was negative. The Nasdaq was negative, and I would submit, but for that CDC headline, the Nasdaq would have been down significantly more. Um, I think that bailed out the entire market today, and it's not coincidental that the market basically took off from the time of that release. So, no, I don't believe it. I believe in Kevin Costner's soliloquy about the things he believes in in Bull Durham. And I just want to say that you sort of let Dan slide by with that obtuse thing. Of course, he was speaking <laughs> about the great Shawshank Redemption, the Stephen King book. And he was thinking about Andy Dufresne when he said obtuse. He got thrown into solitary confinement, Mel. You should have gotten it right in his grill with that thing.
3: If I had known, Guy, I would have gotten right in his grill, as you say. Um, but I didn't. And I don't. So anyway, James, just quickly your take on the market action.
7: 2% moves in indexes are rare. They happen about 3% of all trading days. And we had 2% selling across the board yesterday. When that happens, there has to be some recovery. I think that's what happened today, recovery. But I think we're going to continue the downside. Going all right. Forward.
3: Don't go anywhere. Up next, our can't-miss interview with Disney CEO Bob Chapek. We'll get his reaction to the company's quarter. He joined us after this quick break. Welcome back to Fast Money. Disney shares are down on the back of earnings, down by 3.6%. The company's conference call just ended. We will get to Julia Borson for a first on CNBC interview with Disney CEO Bob Chapek after this quick break. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Fast Money. Disney shares down 3.5% on the back of earnings. The company's conference call just ended. So let's get back to Julia Borson for a first on CNBC interview with Disney CEO Bob Chapek. Julia Melissa, thanks so much. And Bob Chapek, thank you so much for
4: joining us today. I'm going to jump right in because I know we um, are tight on time here on the heels of your earnings. The stock is dropping on concerns about Disney Plus, those subscribers not growing as fast as many had anticipated. What are the trends you're seeing right now, both at the end of the quarter and into this current quarter that we're in? And how does that impact your outlook for Disney Plus?
12: Well, our outlook continues to be 230 to 260 million households by the end of 24, consistent with the guidance that we gave last December. We've added 30 million new households to Disney Plus just in the first six months of the year. So we're extremely bullish. And in fact, this quarter's numbers were exactly as we projected internally. So uh, no, no disappointment here. Uh, I think if you want to look at the actual rate of uh, net ads, uh, we've actually added more in the last month than we have in the prior two months in terms of households. So uh, we see our net increases increasing. We hit the number we project and we're looking towards a nice long run here all the way to 2024 to hit the same numbers that we projected back in December.
4: Now, looking, Bob, at ESPN Plus, you just announced two new sports rights deals and extension of those MLB rights through 2028. How important is it to have those streaming rights on ESPN Plus, and are you concerned that that might cannibalize your core pay TV business?
12: Well, we've insisted in every deal that we've done, and as you've mentioned, we've done quite a few in the last few months. Our flexibility to pivot to ESPN Plus uh, when we see fit, and in some cases, to simulcast. And it's an extremely important component to us because we know the consumer's evolving and changing. And uh, that consumer's going to drive the rate of that evolution. And we want to be on the front end of that wave, actually a little bit ahead of the consumer. So uh, at some point, if there are some cannibalization effects, uh, that's really driven by consumer demand. And at Disney, we're the kind of company that wants to not only anticipate that, but be in front of that. And uh, just like we've done with our direct-to-consumer platforms on the entertainment side. Uh, if we need to lead that, we'll lead that.
4: Now, shifting gears over to the parks, there was big news today from the CDC. I'm loosening mask rules. What does that mean for your parks? How will it change your restrictions, your rules about masks, and the, how much people want to come to the parks?
12: Well, first of all, there's going to be a lot more comfortable people this summer in Orlando. You can only imagine what it would be like in 95 degrees uh, and 95 percent humidity wearing a mask. So we're thrilled to be able to do that. I think it speaks to the uh, ability for our guests now to come in uh, you know, more significant ways to our parks. And right now, as we speak, we're already increasing the capacities to our parks, given the guidance that we've gotten and I think uh, we've seen no shortage of demand whatsoever in terms of that pent-up demand that people have really missed our parks. They've missed the magic, and they really crave that, that Disney Park experience, and we're going to be able to supply that to them. And so uh, I think in relatively short order, you're going to see our um, attendance uh, go up significantly. And, you know, 80% of the cast members that we've called back that we unfortunately had to furlough or layoff are on their way back and have uh, indicated not only a willingness, but a a zealotry in terms of uh, coming back and making that magic for our guests.
4: And and Bob, based on the bookings you're seeing for the all important summer season, based on spending that that people are doing at the parks right now, what's your outlook for when the parks will get back to their pre-pandemic revenue levels?
12: Well, we're not going to comment on either revenue or operating income because we don't give that type of guidance. But I will say that our demand, for example, at Walt Disney World is already back to uh, 2019 levels in terms of forward bookings. So, again, we see that confidence that we've been able to instill in our guests that we can operate uh, our parks in a responsible way during this pandemic, plus the affinity for the content and all the experiences that we give them and the magic that we create, uh, that's all going to pay big dividends for us and our shareholders going forward because Uh they've got confidence uh in Disney Uh and they can't wait.
4: I want to make sure to get your thoughts on the theatrical business and how that intersects with Disney Plus. You just announced today that you're going to be giving an exclusive 45 day theatrical window to a film yeah. opening in August, another one opening in September. What does that tell us about how you're going to think about t- taking movies simultaneously to theaters and Disney Plus, and taking movies exclusively to theaters? What does the future of movie going look like for Disney fans?
12: Well, right now, 90% of theaters in the domestic market, the markets at least, are, are open. And so there's, there's plenty of opportunity for consumers right now to go see movies. Uh, we've been very encouraged by our recent polling, Disney uh, Research, in terms of people's willingness and growth and willingness to come back to theaters. Right now, they're a little hesitant, but we think that's going to change significantly in the next few months. And while we've got this ability to hedge with our Disney Premier access strategy, because over the next month or two, we know that the while there will be growth and willingness to go, it may not be to the extent that, you know, we want to go ahead and put all of our eggs in the th- theatrical exhibition basket, but we're hopeful that by the end of summer, more and more, consumers will feel free, particularly with the CDC guidelines today about relieving the constraint on mass, that that will uh, give us the ability then to go ahead and return to a shortened window, but at least an exclusive window where we can continue to build those Disney franchises the way that we have in the past and continue to fuel fuel the growth, not only for our theatrical exhibition business, but most importantly to our Disney Plus business.
4: Most importantly to the Disney Plus business, I will remember that you said that, Bob. Fascinating, fascinating time of transition for the theme parks as well as the theatrical movie business. Bob Chapek, I hope you'll come back soon. Really appreciate it.
12: Thank you very much.
3: Melissa, back over to you. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borson with Bob Chapek. The stock is down 3.8% now on the back of earnings. Tim, um, a lot came out of that interview. What stood out to me was that Disney was already revisiting capacity limits given the guidance given, given by the CDC just today, which would imply to me that there could, in fact, be some upside um, that analysts may not have already factored in to future quarters.
1: I think that's right. I, I just I, I'm not getting too caught up in additional costs from the last quarter or what capacity they are at or what capacity they're going to be in the next couple of months because that's not the story here. The story is is really first of all when she got into the issues around linear TV and the promotional element of what are they going to do. I mean that's you know that's the key. I, I think their linear TV business becomes more promotional. It's about driving streaming revenue. I think the theatrical experience conversation is also interesting because. Surprise, people like to go to the movie theater. But for Disney, that creates a cultural impact. It creates a moment. It creates, you know, actually a... a, a a chance for those films really to take part of, you know, the the, the culture around them. So I I think that's actually good news for Disney. Further establishes them. Yes, they have PVOD. They will use it. Um, And and again, I think they're kind of a victim of their own success here. So these numbers will be a little choppy on these subs. Uh, I think Guy brought up the most important point. The ARPU should be the part that's most disappointing Mm -hmm. uh, if people really want to see how profitable they're going to be. But more importantly, Disney's model long term with their content and with their platform There's nothing here that should disappoint.
3: Um, The stock is now just about at after our session lows down four percent at this point. Dan, that the the ending part of the interview, which Julia underscored um, when he said, most importantly, Disney Plus, that that was a real takeaway as well.
6: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, she's, she's filed that one away. You know, it's interesting though, Mel, when I look at the chart of this stock and I go back to early November and I look in December, there were two big gaps there. And both of those gaps were really um, about vaccines, right, and the rollout. So we can talk all we want about this digital transformation and the potential cannibalization of their networks business and all that sort of stuff. But this stock really got going late last year when the path became clearer about when they can open the parks and then the whole f- uh, flywheel open. Cinemas, that sort of thing. So so to me, I, I'm kind of with Tim in this one. I do think that it's likely to kind of come in. I don't think that people are going to be poking too many holes about valuations because again, they're comps. It's kind of like apples to oranges here. Um and I think James made a really good point too. At some point, at a price, maybe it's close to 160, then it is that kind of stalwarty sort of um you, you know, Dow stock that people will come in and buy at that point.
3: Yeah. Guy, you know, Rich Greenfield, he's a he's a fierce Twitterer. And he did tweet the question that he would ask Bob Chapek, which we didn't get a chance to ask him. Why not spin off ESPN and ABC to focus on the streaming side of the business? And, you know, you wonder if that's going through the minds of of Disney management, um, if that's at some point something that they will revisit.
5: Yeah, I'll give you two words for that, for the answer. Sports gambling. I mean, ESPN was Mm -hmm. dead in the water And then I remember the day. And then sports gambling was, I think, legalized in New Jersey. It's been off to Disney. Actually, the stock has been off to the races ever since. So that would be my answer to that. And in terms of what I heard in the conversation, first of all, it's great that 80% of the people that were furloughed are going back to get their job, which is wonderful. And the other thing I would have, you know, you could have said, look, we understand to a certain point Disney Plus is a bit of a lost leader. Tom Rogers talks about it all the time, but we think it adds to the flywheel that Tim and Dan just spoke about as well. It all makes sense. I mean, I'm not suggesting it doesn't. My concern has been incorrectly valuation. And to Dan and James's point, if it gets to 162, that's where you buy it with both hands.
3: All right. Still so ahead, a bombshell bet in the options market on the Arc Innovation ETF. Why one trader is banking on a big turnaround. We'll break down the action when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the Qs bouncing back today after yesterday's huge tech washout. But it wasn't all good news for tech. The ARK Innovation Fund was down another 2.5% today. And though it's down 8% in the past week, Tony Zhang spotted one trade in the options market that could be pointing
13: to a huge turnaround. So, Tony, what did you see? Yeah, Melissa, as you said, it's, not, it's been a pretty tough time for ARK investors, down almost 20% here in the last three weeks. But as during this sell-off here, we have seen options trade very actively here today, almost four times the average daily volume traded just today, perhaps playing for a little bit of a bounce here next week. We saw a fairly unusual trade here, 4,000 contracts of a call spread risk reversal, which is a common strategy that we see, but what's uncommon about it is that it expires next Friday. This is expiring May 21st, the 85, 102, 109 call spread risk reversal. So the trader here sold the $85 puts, to help finance paying for the 102 109 call spread. So this is a trade that's going to risk just a little shy of $600,000 if arc is between $85 and 102, but it pays a profit a potential reward of up to $2.2 million if arc rebounds and exceeds $109 by next Friday. So this is a fairly interesting way to play uh, with a four to one risk to reward ratio of a very short term bet that ARC is going to take a nice bounce here over the next week.
3: I'll have to ask uh, Dan Nathan, who goes by at risk reversal on Twitter about this risk reversal. So Dan, do you think this works yeah. out in this short time frame?
6: it's a good spot I think you know the worst case scenario for this trader is that this the ETF is below 85 and not only do you lose that premium that you paid but then you start losing below 85 you may say the likelihood of that happening with the ETF around 100 is not particularly great but then when you see some of the holdings in this thing and you see that Tesla the largest holding at over 10% just broke that one-year uptrend from its March 2020 lows below its 200-day moving average for the first time there are tons of stocks in that ETF that Look, god awful. I mean, it literally it went from you know this 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 new innovation thing to changing the world to the island of misfit toys. And, and I'm not just beating up on it. There are a lot of great companies in there. The stocks just got overvalued, and now Kathy Wood has this vehicle where she has daily redemptions and some very volatile and very illiquid stocks. So to me, this is kind of big end of the pool sort of stuff. If you're selling puts in a name like this, even short dated.
3: Yeah, James, I'm, I'm guessing that this is not an ETF that you would recommend at all.
7: I think what's missing with ARC is downside protection. We've got so many innovations out there. Uh, in technology. There are innovations in finance as well. We've got a lot of ETFs now that offer downside protection. If there was downside protection in this ETF, it would be the perfect ETF to own because it's going to own the future. But we saw back in February also in a single week, $4 billion in redemptions. That's going to wreck a business of money management. And Kathy's (laughs) brilliant at stock picking. She needs to be stock picking, uh, not on TV. I think I just told her myself. But this is a great (laughs) basket of holdings. uh, But we're late cycle here. And There's going to be a ton of money that comes out of those holdings, uh, to Dan's point. And there's going to be a ton of money that comes out of this ETF. um, And I'd like to see some risk hedging in this ETF.
3: All right. Uh, Tony Zhang, thank you. And we'll see you tomorrow night for a full half hour of Options Action, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, we've got your final trade. Final trade time. Dan, what do you say?
6: Yeah, DoorDash reported good results up 8%. Keep an eye on this one. If you can't hold the gains, watch out below. These other high value
10: shit.
3: CEOs on MAD, by the way. Tim?
1: Another high multiple stock that's been punished, but I think around $40, DraftKings finds some support. Guy talked about sports betting, what it means for ESPN. How about DraftKings?
3: James McDonald?
7: Everybody in the world wants to know how to make money in crypto. It's a dangerous industry. Get an expert to do it for you. BITQ, brand new crypto ETF.
3: Guy Dami.
5: Eli Lilly, Melissa Lee.
3: All right. Well, thank you. And thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at five. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Kramer starts
0: right now.